Church, this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, again, as we work through the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, and we are right here in verse 15. It's the last of a series of very short commandments, and it's this. You shall not steal. Now, this is a commandment for most of us, where we feel like we can finally breathe a sigh of relief, because... Things like honoring our authorities or anger, as we've been talking about earlier, or even lust, as we talked about last week, those are maybe everyday struggles that we, we go through. But when it comes to stealing, well, we kind of think not a problem, despite what maybe Pastor Daniel prayed for us just now. Now, it's true stealing happens all around us. Uh, The IRS estimates that it loses about $380 billion a year from taxpayers underreporting their income. $380 billion. American businesses report nearly $60 billion lost in shoplifting and fraud. Guess where that gets passed down to? All of you who who buy stuff. Uh, One hotel reported that in its first year of business, they needed to replace 38,000 spoons, 1,400 towels, 335 coffee pots, and of all things, 100 Bibles. And so you might think, well, that's the world out there. Stealing might happen to us, but I don't steal. So when you hear, you shall not steal, you relax, and you say, finally, a commandment where we get to talk about the sins of other people, right? After all, what's the closest we get to stealing? Maybe it's like that third round of samples that we get from Costco or something like that. Even then, it's like a gray area, right? But I think as we examine this commandment, we will find the injunction to not steal is expansive, And it's calling us to do much more than simply refrain from a five-finger discount. Now, before we look at this verse in more detail, it's important for us to remember where we are in Exodus. Because as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, it would be far too easy for us to slip into what I would say is a rootless, a rootless obedience. By that I mean that we can be men and women who try to obey these Ten Commandments by sheer strength of willpower. I'm just going to grit my teeth and be able to accomplish it instead of all of it being rooted in a gospel obedience. In other words, you can honor your parents. You can stop yourself from being angry. You can stop yourself from from stealing and, and do it in a way just like a good Muslim would do it, or a good Buddhist would do it, or a good Pharisee would do it. You can do all these things, and it's all what? Legalism, legalism, and it's just obedience because you don't see the goodness and the wisdom of the command to obey it freely and gladly. So if you try to obey these commandments without an inner renewal, stemming from the gospel, then you are nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. 
You're going to look nice and clean on the outside, but inside full of dead man's bones. So it's important to remember that in the giving of the law, where are we with Exodus? Israel is already redeemed. They are already God's people. They are already called to be a kingdom of priests. They are to keep the laws by faith, to keep them for their own good, for God's glory. And in the same way, that's what we must do when it comes to these commandments. Church, you, Christian, you are redeemed by God. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You are renewed in the mind. And so what does that mean? That means you keep these laws not only because it's for your good and it's for the good of others, but because out of a, out of a gospel-rooted obedience, you, 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 you keep these rules, you keep these commandments for God's glory. Now, with that as our backdrop, I do want to explore the Bible's teaching about the Eighth Commandment. Under two headings. First, the mandate of God. We'll spend some time there. And then the metric of grace. First, the mandate of God. And there's like a lot that I want to say here about the rule and its root and, and, and the roots of this of this sin and and also the remedy for it. But note here the rule is pretty straightforward. You shall not steal. Now you notice that it doesn't say what you won't steal, when you won't steal, or from whom you won't steal. It's pretty much a generic command. Now, why is it so generic? It's to enforce that you won't steal from anyone at any time and for any reason. It's a comprehensive command. It's a comprehensive command. Now, there are several categories I thought of when it comes to breaking this rule of of stealing. First, there's stuff. Now, there's just some obvious things that we aren't to do. You don't break into someone's home and take their things. You don't carjack. You don't, I don't don't know if people even carjack anymore, but you don't shoplift, right? You just don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. So children, children, You don't yank toys out of your brother or sister's hands. When it's not your own, you don't have the right to take it. Just because you want it. Now, students, don't plagiarize. Don't plagiarize. You don't copy someone's work. Or maybe chat GPT's work, word for word, and line for line, or thought for thought, and say... That's my work. But there are some less obvious examples. Many of us may succeed in avoiding the more sociopathic forms of stealing, only to fall, fail in avoiding the more socially acceptable ones. You know those socially acceptable ones, right? There are some things like online piracy. Sometimes we feel file sharing is just a fancy word for file, is really just a f- uh, fancy word for file stealing. Uh, We have these Spotify and Netflix and Disney Plus accounts under a family rubric when really we're not a family. It's just stealing. How about 
taking things from the workplace. Now, I know your work may continue to provide lunch and snacks for you, but I'm not, I'm pretty certain your workplace is not wanting you to provide for yourself breakfast and brunch and lunch and dinner and dinner, okay? Or how about something as little as sharing your drink? You know, there, you know that's that occasion where you buy one drink and you know it's all you can drink, but you pour it out to all your friends and then you keep refilling and refilling and refilling. You know, that's a form of stealing. You say, oh, I'm sharing with my friends. Well, you're stealing from the vendor. There are all kinds of stealing that we wink at or give no thought to, scarcely even identifying them as sinful. And they're the ones we can most easily convince ourselves that there's no harm done. So what's the big deal? But just because you can get away with it doesn't mean you should do it. Doesn't mean you should do it. Of course, the commandment to steal is not limited to taking stuff, but also defrauding others. It's withholding from someone else what ought to be their possession. Here, the Bible is more explicit in its condemnation, this unjust exploitation of others. Now, a couple examples here. In the Eighth Commandment, it prohibits the unlawful taking of people. While from our vantage point, the Bible may not say all we want it to say when it re- in regards to slavery, chattel slavery, the slavery we understand it in the early history of the United States and in the world, elsewhere in the world, was outlawed by the Eighth Commandment. All you have to do is turn to Exodus 21, verse 6. It's just a page down from you. And it says this. Oh, verse 16. Sorry, not. Verse 6, it says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Last week, we looked at 1 Timothy 1, where Paul is listing out the Ten Commandments, and he's going through the second table of the law, and he says, and, you know, he says uh, some prohibitions, and he talks about the Seventh Commandment, and how he says... You know, sexual immorality and men who practice homosexuality, those are forbidden. And he, then he goes on to the Eighth Commandment, and he calls out what? He calls out enslavers. So Paul applies the Eighth Commandment to those who take people. And so the whole system of forcibly taking, buying, and selling into slavery is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And the Bible has a lot to say about defrauding others in business practices. God is angry when we manipulate transactions so that you get more than you deserve. Or when you're being less than forthright in your financial dealings. Or when you start to line your pockets at the expense of other people. Look at Exodus 22, 25. It says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Now, the problem here he's saying is not with loans. He's not saying it's bad to give out loans. He's not saying it's bad to take a loan. But what it condemns is giving a loan to those who have no other options. Those are called loans of destitution. For people who have fallen on hard times, 
Uh, this is where unscrupulous people will come in, maybe to the farmer after a storm has happened and wiped out all their crops, and he says, oh, you need something to get back on your feet? I got you. But it's really going to cost you. And God is not satisfied with this mantra of just saying, it's not personal, it's just business, as a justification of some kind of personal indifference to the needs of others. All in the service of a quick buck. You know, I have a son who has many goals, but one of them is to be rich. And one of the things he often does is he trades with his five-year-old sister who doesn't know the value of a dollar. He takes something of little value and trades, something of her to, trades it to her for something he knows she values. And when the excitement of the trade wears off, she will inevitably want that item back. But this time, it really costs her. And currently, her little sister owes her, owes her brother $7 billion and $200. <laughs> I'm seeing Jacob and Esau playing out in my living room right now, you know? So we can only, we, we understand this. We, we've seen it in the news. We've seen Bernie, we understand Bernie Madoff. We understand Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. We understand when you are not properly even caring for the, 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 you know, the money that's been given to you in Silicon Valley Bank or whatever it might be. Luther says the eighth commandment is violated by taking advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. A person steals not only when he robs a man's safe or his pocket, but also when he takes advantage of his neighbor at the market, in a grocery shop, butcher stall, workshop, and in short, wherever business is transacted and money is exchanged for goods or labor. So you violate the Eighth Commandment when you develop marketing and advertising strategies, perhaps, that tell people you really need to upgrade your phone or you really need to have your money be safe. You prey on their fears and say, oh, but you know what you, you need? You need crypto. Or, or maybe you really need this Ozempic drug when you're really selling them things they don't need. Maybe can't afford and it's not good for them. The rule against stealing includes stealing stuff and defrauding others, but it also prohibits waste and laziness. It's easy to rationalize doing personal things sometimes on company time. I understand that. I, I, I understand that there's wiggle room here. I understand that, you know, it's built in that you can check your social media account for five minutes and it's not a big deal, right? And your employer is not going to think, you're really stealing from me. But when that five minutes turns into 30 minutes and you're having a long lunch break and you're doing half-baked work or maybe it's even you're preparing Bible study on company time, that's stealing. When you say you're working from home but you're really taking care of your children or going on long walks with your spouse, that's stealing. You're stealing from your employer. Parents, I know 
It can be hard to put down that phone. Again, it's okay to check your phone. (laughs) Parents, I know we need breaks too. But we know that there are times when we rob our children of time and love and biblical instruction or simply just our attention. Not working hard or expecting others to take care of you when you don't work hard is a form of stealing. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now church, we can probably think of many more instances. We can, the list can go on and on. Uh, maybe stealing a good person's reputation through our cheap gossip or careless conversation. We grasp the rule but what is its root? Why do we steal? The answer is that stealing is an act of selfish unbelief. It is selfish unbelief. It is a desire to have without any effort. It's a desire just to take the shortcut. The spiritual maggots that breed in the flesh of those who steal, self-love, discontentment, envy of others, without any regard to anyone else and how it hurts them or how it impacts them. Jen Wilkin writes, stealing, like murder and adultery, is an expression of contempt. You know what contempt is? It's this idea of feeling a person is beneath you, worth less than you, worth less than you. In other words, it is a violation of our call to love our neighbor. It is a sense of entitlement where we are the center of the world and we say, who cares if this company or others lose out? I say it is selfish unbelief because stealing is a disbelief. It's an assault on God's providence. It says, I don't trust in what God's given me or will give me. And it's an assault on God's providence for others. I don't trust what God has given to other people. And the devil whispers in your ear that it's more valuable to have whatever it is than to take God at his word and love others. So what is the remedy? How can the stealer steal no more? What allows a thief to be freed from this compulsion? It's not willpower. Pharisees are produced by willpower. No, stealing must be overcome by something greater, by faith. Stealing can be overcome when the gospel, stealing can only be overcome when the gospel takes root. When the heart of stone is turned into flesh and the thief moves from a selfish unbelief to that of a loving trust in the promises of God. Now, what are the promises that you have that are available for you, Christian? What are the promises you have? Well, the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than the sparrows, church. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his son but gave, us, gave him up for us all, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise. The Lord of the universe. The one who owns all things, knows all things, created all things. Uh, like, the one who has the power to, to create, to save, and to damn. God says, fear not. Don't take the daily bread of others. Let me provide for you your daily bread. Second, when it comes to the Eighth Commandment, we must consider the metric of grace. The metric of grace. We've reflected on the mandate of God, its rule, its, its roots, its remedy. Now we turn to the metric of grace. You see, when God breaks into our lives by the gospel, something remarkable, something extraordinary happens in the heart of a Christian. No longer does it think narrowly, how can I, how can I keep this commandment? Uh, what am I going to do to not steal? Uh, what's my minimum obligation? No. It means that instead of robbing my neighbor, you think, how can I bless my neighbor? In other words, this command not only exhorts us to stop stealing, but to give sacrificially. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians, that's in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 28. Now, you have to look at this verse. It's very important that you're looking at it because there's so many different parts to it. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So when is a thief not a thief? Not when he stops stealing, but when he gives it away. Now notice the Eighth Commandment assumes the right to and the goodness of what? Private property. Okay? Uh, the, the goodness of private property is not a modern idea. Uh, the whole concept of stealing would fail to make any sort of sense if we weren't allowed to own private property. Even in Acts, the picture of the early church where people freely gave and they freely shared and provided for each other, they were selling their things, which means they had possessions, to give freely out of their own heart's desire, not coercively, to others. Uh, they were not sort of some sort of commune or communist society where people pooled all their resources together and no one owed an, owned anything and were just doling it out to everyone. I think rather there was a communal instinct, and I think that's a big difference. So possessions are not bad. That's not what the sermon is about. God blesses Job. Those possessions were good for him to have. God blesses Israel. He gives them the land. Those were good for them to have. What the Bible means by ownership, however, is not possessing things to use for our own purposes. Rather, they are to be used for God's glory. To put it simply, the Eighth Commandment is about stewardship. It's about a heart of generosity. 
Look at what it says in Ephesians. You notice the progression that he makes here in Ephesians 4.28. He says, you can steal in order to have. That's one way of getting stuff. You can work in order to have. But he says what? That's not enough. You work in order to give. This is what makes the ethic so distinctly Christian. You can steal because you have greed in your heart. You can work hard with your hands, and you can still have greed in your heart. One way is illegal by our world standards. The other way is legal by our world standards, and yet both are sinful. The purpose of getting goods is not to, is not to keep them and hoard them for personal use, but to give it away. This is incredibly freeing. Think about this. Your entire life could be a whole act of grace. That's what your life can be. The Westminster Confession writes this about the duties required by us in the Eighth Commandment and says that we would endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. Church, let that settle in. That we are mere stewards of our wealth. We are duty-bound to labor for the provision and well-being of others. The words of Paul are this, let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we understand ourselves to be stewards of God's resources rather than owners, we learn to think differently about earthly treasures. And you understand this. You understand this concept of stewardship. Uh, I've had to learn it in the past couple of years as well. Uh, many of you know that I live in a home in Palo Alto, and it's not mine. I didn't pay a dime for it. Uh, Shirley didn't pay a dime for it. In fact, it belongs to my father-in-law. And we pay him rent. To tell you the truth, that has been a great lesson for me. Because it doesn't belong to me. People always want to stay over at our place. And we're always happy to open it up to them. But we always say, we know that we have to ask their permission. We call them. We say, is it okay for somebody to come and stay at this home? Because we know it's not ours. We're mere stewards of it. When the fence blows down, we got to fix it. When the heating doesn't work, we got to fix it. But we're just mere stewards. When people want to come over, we ask because it's their home. And church, your wealth is not your own. When you hear people praying for their daily bread, do you ever think maybe it's you are the answer to that prayer? Church, every time you give stuff away, and I don't mean the leftovers on Facebook Marketplace, okay? Every time you work and give away maybe a significant part of your paycheck, it shows what? Money and comfort's not my master. Jesus is, right? Isn't that, what, isn't that what you're saying? Every time, it's a declaration of your freedom. The world just works to have and have and have and comfort and comfort and comfort. And that doesn't take the gospel. That just takes moral Americans. Christians are those who have been recipients of grace. 
and want to see it for others. They are people moved from selfishness to stewardship. Uh, maybe just do a thought experiment for yourself. Whatever, when, when maybe some windfall of money comes to you, you find $100 on the ground. You pick it up. What are your first thoughts? I've always been wanting that extra gadget for myself. Or is your first thought, oh, I get a great opportunity to give it away for others, to help other people. Listen to what John Piper says on this topic in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. He writes, too many, and it's quite a long quote, so you've got to pay attention here. Too many are more shaped by the consumer culture than by the economics of Christ. They still operate on the simple rule, if you earned it, you deserve it. It's yours. Use it for your own material comfort. They have been taken in by the half-truth that says we glorify God with money by enjoying, thankfully, all luxuries he enables us to buy. God is not glorified when we keep for ourselves, no matter how thankfully, what we ought to be using to alleviate the misery of unevangelized and uneducated and unhoused and unfed millions. The problem is not with earning a lot. The problem is the constant accumulation of luxuries that are soon felt to be needs. If you want to be a conduit for God's grace, you don't have to be lined with gold. Copper will do. Do you understand what he's saying? Church, I'm afraid too many of us have lived gold-gilded lives. And we have robbed God of his glory that way. We're to be conduits of grace with our resources, with our time. Gold works, but copper will do. You know, you don't need a Nuna stroller to disciple your children. Graco will do. I understand hospitality, opening up your homes, is one way of being generous and giving to others. It's a way to, to, to welcome the stranger to, to your home, to welcome your neighbor to a, to a dinner feast and to be able to have opportunities for the gospel. Hospitality is, is, a, is a way to, to give refuge for the Christian brother or sister who feels lonely and, and just needs a haven of rest. But you know what? Restoration hardware is great, but Ikea will do. Apartments will do. You don't need Heath ceramics to share a cup of coffee in a discipling relationship. Corningware will do. Ah, we could go on and on. But church, what would it mean if we would be the kind of people that joyfully scaled back our vacations? I mean, who would... I don't know. I don't, I'm not a drinker of these things, but... Who would settle for teaspoon rather than, oh, I must have TPT. See, some of you are laughing because you get it. Okay? But we are the people who are happy, happy to stop gorging ourselves on new culinary experiences. And we just dream of all the ways we can support a kingdom cause, support a missions agency, support a crisis pregnancy center, like real options or whatever it might be. Because church, you've been blessed in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? First Peter 1 Peter 1.4, you have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, and it's kept in heaven for you. I need to hear an amen. Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You are rich. You are wealthy, and all this wealth is yours, and so it is much easier to give it away, isn't it? It's much easier to give away what isn't really yours. Now, some of you have worked your whole life, and you have all your riches, and it's really been for you and for your security and for your pleasure or for your enjoyment. And you've robbed God with the way that you've lived your life, with the way you've ignored him all your life. But the promise is that it's never too late for you to turn from this thievery. When soldiers came to arrest Christ, what did he say? You coming at me like I'm a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? And then Jesus was crucified. Crucified between two, what? Thieves. He was counted as a breaker of the eighth commandment. But in the final hours of his, of his agony, one of, the thief, one of the thieves turned to him. It's the thief that Jesus forgave. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Friend, while it is still called today, heed the eighth commandment. Don't let your hand keep grasping for the goods of others. Don't let your pockets turn, just let your pockets turn loose of earthly treasures because there is an infinitely more precious treasure, a pearl of great price. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, you have riches that cannot spoil and that cannot fade. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the ways in which you, your commandments both strikes at our hearts of disobedience but also gives us the grace that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, how often you have lavished your goodness towards us and we haven't even turned around to say thank you. And so, God, we ask that we would be men, women, boys and girls who would have hearts of gratitude to see the riches that are to be found in Christ and to hold loosely the things that you give to us. Oh, you have given us so much to enjoy. We thank you for that grace and may we be gracious to others by the strength that your spirit supplies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.